Okay, my friends. So there is a lot to talk about this week. And then there's a topic that I chose to emphasize afterwards, which is what happens when our C splits. So let's first go through the Torah portion. There's really a lot. The first thing it says is Vayihi b'shalach paro, when paro sent the nation. And then it goes on to tell us that God did not allow for the Jewish people to go directly in the straight path towards Mount Sinai because they would come across the Philistines and that would be war. And Hashem didn't want them to immediately deal with war. They're still raw, they're still fragile, you know, they're still learning that they're free. So Hashem takes them a different route. And another thing it says here is v'chamushim alu b'nei Yisrael. Now the word chamushim is unusual. So what, excuse me, one of the meanings is, and we use it in modern day Hebrew too, when someone is armed. The chamushim means that they left with weapons armed to be able to protect themselves. But then the word chamushim also comes from the word chamisha, which means five. And from here is what, lay, what last week became the whole uh, aftermath conversation of the class that only one fifth of, of the Jewish people agreed to leave Egypt. And then it tells us that Moses took the bones of Yosef because Yosef made them swear that when it comes the time, they should take his bones out of Egypt. Now, simply speaking, and for those of you who are in Israel and who know about it, all the 12 sons are buried in Israel because each tribe took their, their patriarch, their head of the tribe. So why did Joseph have to warn the whole Jewish people? And the simple reason is because Joseph knew he would not be buried in the Jewish cemetery, but rather there's two opinions where he was buried. One says that they made a solid coffin and put it into the Nile River. And another one says that he was buried together with all the other royalty in the pyramids. So therefore, being that it wasn't like they knew where he was, therefore he made you know, a Shavua, an oath with all the Jewish people. And Moses was the one that actually took it. And the Talmud says, but why didn't his tribe take it? And they said, it's a greater honor for our patriarch Yosef to be with Moses than it is to be with us. And that's the way it traveled for 40 years. The uh, coffin of Joseph was right next to the tent of Moses. Okay, then he, um, the Torah describes to us how the Jewish people traveled. So the Jewish people always had a sign that God is with them, which obviously makes it so difficult to understand, you know, why there was so many times they rebelled. But literally there was a pillar of a cloud that went in front of them by day. And there was a pillar of fire that traveled in front of them at night. So literally they had this entire 40 years, a clear, significant sign that God is leading them. Okay, now it tells us the next story. It tells us that when, when the Jewish people were told by God to camp, and God tells Moses, I'm doing this in order to draw out Pharaoh. I want Pharaoh and his army to come after you, and then there will be the final break. And so it was that the uh, Egyptians, Pharaoh said, whoa, 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 one second. They said for three days and they're not coming back. It's been six days already. So he goes out to chase them and he reaches them on the seventh day. The seventh day is the day where the splitting of the sea happened. So you have the first day of Passover when we have the Seder. You have the seventh day of Passover when there was a splitting of the sea. Now, what happens is that Pharaoh took the last remaining best animals. And also he brought out a bunch of animals to come and be with him to attack. And 
they're chasing the Jewish people. Now, it says that when the Jewish people saw them, they got frightened. Now, simple question. You're talking about 600 just men from the age of 20 to 60, 600,000, right? And there was much more than that. Now, if you look in the verse, it says you only had 600 soldiers. So what is going on? What is the whole fright? So our sages tell us that what the Jewish people saw was that the ministering angel of Egypt was coming to get back the Jewish people. And the reason is because when the Jewish people is within a country, that country receives a deeper level of sustenance because the Jewish people through their prayer get from a higher level of sustenance directly from God. Hence the ministering angel wants the Jewish people in his country. So he himself, the ministering angel itself was leading the Egyptians. And from that, the Jewish people got frightened. Now, I'm going to put a little pause here because I want to share with you a mystical insight. The verse says, Oparoi hikriv. Now, the word hikriv doesn't mean he got close, but it means he made get close. So therefore, our, our sages say an amazing insight into what's happening here. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh, with all the suffering that he caused to the Jewish people, he brought the Jewish people closer to God. He was hikrib vayis, and the way you read the verse, according to the, the mystical teaching, vayisu b'nei Yisrael, he brought close and he lifted up the Jewish people to God. And, and from that note, I want to go back to the opening verse, According to the teachings of Hasidus, it says, when Paro sent the nation, he sent the Jewish people. So there's an amazing teaching from the first Lubavitcher Rebbe that he sent with them provisions. He sent with them stuff. Now, on a mystical level, that means he sent with them the godly sparks that were trapped in Egypt which the Jewish people elevated. There were 202 sparks that were elevated. 288 fell down to this world. 202 were elevated just from what the Jewish people went through in Egypt. And there's another teaching that literally he sent with them, you know, stuff. And the, stu and the point I'm trying to make here is that ultimately speaking, even though the evil people have bad intentions, but ultimately God's intentions are always for the benefit. And therefore we're learning here that Pharaoh actually brought an elevation and a closeness and an intimacy between the Jewish people and God as they turned to God to ask for help. Now, just that you know, the Jewish people broke out into four different groups of opinions. One said, let us go back to Egypt. It was a failed attempt. The other one said, let us go to war against Egypt. The other one said, let us commit suicide, like in Masada. And the other one said, let us pray. Interesting enough, God vetoed all of them. If you look in the verse, Moses tells the Jewish people in the name of God, Hashem Yelochim Lochem, God will wage war for you, the Atem Tacharishun, and you will remain silent. So if you look at what's going on here in the verses, you'll actually see that God, that Moses is answering all the four groups. The one that said, let's go back, Moses says, today you see the Egyptians, you will not see them again. So there's no going back. The ones that said, let's go to war, the verse says, God will wage war. So the ones that said that you, we should commit suicide, the verse says, don't be afraid, stand strong, and you will see the salvation of God. 
And for the ones that said pray, the verse says, and you shall be silent. So all of the four opinions of the Jewish people, God saying is not the correct response. What is the correct response? So God tells Moses, why are you screaming to me? Speak to the Jewish people and travel forward. Now, I want to share with you an amazing teaching of the Rebbe upon these words. So, we'll talk about it soon, how this is scientifically, but a very interesting message. You can be looking at the problems and trying to deal with the problems, or you can be looking with the death at the destiny and trying to reach the destiny. Over here, God is telling us, do not look back to work with the problems. Look forward to your destiny. Now, this is an amazing teaching upon therapeutic, you know, psychological therapy in understanding that to just sit in therapy and continuously talk about the past and the impact the past had on you is to live in the pain of the past. However, if we can focus on the destiny, focus on that we can make a change, we can rewire ourselves, that is, that is the true therapeutic approach. And therefore, always, no matter what we're going through, easier said than done, oh, Lord knows, I, I, I struggle with this as well, and mightily so. However, the point is always be solution-driven. And, and from the perspective of, but how can I be solution-driven when there's a fire burning? And the answer to that is exactly what Moses told the Jews. Stop telling your problem. Stop telling God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big God is and then shift your attention. Completely shift your attention. And for those of you who have shared this before, but those of you who have ever dabbled with Joe Dispenza, there's another book I'm reading now built on the same thing from another therapist. It's called The, the Child, The Boy That Was Brought Up Like a Dog. And it talks about the adverse childhood experiences and what it does and what can we do about it. So basically, our mind, literally our mind and our body, they create the reality in which we presently exist. Now, if all your mind and body is living with is the pains of the past, then that is your present. That will be the program that you're working off, and that will become your future. However, if you can fight the discomfort of not thinking what you're being driven to think, and rather start creating the vision of the future, then your present and your future is about your future and the new program on how to get there, rather than continuously dealing with the quicksands of the past. I think that is very deep in what God is telling Moses here on a most practical level in how we have to deal with the traumas of our past and how we have to rewire our brain into a new vision of the future. Now, God tells Moses, lift your staff and um, stretch out your your staff over the sea, the sea of reeds, and it will split. And the Jewish people, it says, came into the ocean on dry land. It wasn't even muddy. They were completely dry. And that Hashem says, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh will race after you. Now, I just want to share with you, for those of you who, who hang out with my Instagram and know that I make a mimf every day on the Parsha, um, five a week. So just to share with you what is, what is going on here. So 
God is telling Moses that I am doing this all in order to draw Pharaoh out. The Jewish people get caught up in the drama and they're petrified. Hence, I wrote a little meme that says, when God is confusing the enemies, do not get caught up in the confusion. So that's really important. The point of being connected to God is to be able to stay focused and see and not get caught up with the smoke that God is sending to blind the enemies. And so it was that, he, that God brought the fire to be in between. I'm sorry, the cloud was accepting the arrows. And at the early morning dawn, it happens. The Jews went through, the Egyptians are in, and the water comes crashing down. Now, there is huge teachings on this one word that I'm going to share with you. The verse 27 says, and, you know, God told Moses, and then in verse 27, he actually does it. He stretches his hand back out over the ocean, and the ocean returns to its original strength. Now, the word le'etano, or Sephardic le'etano, le'etano makes up the letters of tenai. Tenai means a condition. And our sages say that God allowed the waters to return to their full strength because they kept their condition. What was the condition? God told, in our sages tell us that when God created the waters, he said, I'm creating you on the condition that when it be needed, you will split for my children. Now, why am I pointing this out to you? Because if we get caught up in the smoke, then we don't remain focused on how could it be that God created the world, God gave us the Torah, and God created the world in a way that we will not be able to fulfill the Torah. So, and, and this is not being judgmental. Again, I, I, I never sit over here as the man dressed in white. The Lord knows how many stains I have. But the point is that at least in the depths of our mind and heart, yes, we'll get scared. Yes, we'll panic. Yes, we'll make the wrong decisions. But at least through meditation and concentration, we should be able to understand that, yeah, I would love to keep Shabbat, but the only job I got makes me work on Shabbat. It's impossible to believe that the only situation I have to survive is by working on Shabbat. How would God, who controls nature, set up a system that the man or the woman that he said not to work on Shabbat is left with no other choice simply for survival that they have to work on Shabbat? Hence the deep teaching that God made a condition with each and every creation, every law of nature, every experience, that it will not create a scenario which will make it impossible for the Jewish people to keep the Torah and mitzvot. So therefore, what we're now understanding is that even though it looks like there is the religious life and there is the secular life and they are at war with each other. And if you want one, you have to lose the other. And the answer is no, because it's in the DNA of this secular life. If it's, it's within the DNA of all creations and all situations that it will split to allow the Jewish people to keep their Torah and mitzvot that God commanded them. Now, I, I just want to share, yes, this is a Torah class. I'm talking about Jewish people. But obviously, the same thing applies with Gentiles. It is impossible that God gave Noah seven Noahide laws and then makes it impossible for the Gentile 
to stay connected to God if he or she wants to survive. It just can't be. Hence, you realize that God put it into the DNA of creation that for the Jews, they will make room for the 613 commandments and for the Gentiles, don't make room for the seven commandments because God has to, I know that sounds rough, but God has to set up the system where he makes it possible for us to fulfill his will. And then after that, the Jewish people, they saw the hand of God. And at this point, they not only have faith in God, but they have faith in Moses, his servant. Now here, for anyone that knows specifically Chabad Hasidim, you will know that our Rebbe is our Moses. And based on a teaching in a Medrash, that there's no generation that doesn't have a Moses, based on the teaching of the Zohar, that there's a spark of Moses within every generation. So throughout the history, the Rebbe of the generation is the Moses of the generation. Hence, I want to talk about something that we don't often get to talk. And that is, what is this notion that Hasidim have blind faith in their Rebbe? And because there are some people that really dressed as Hasidim, forgive me, I don't want to talk about my own, but they really don't know. They haven't learned. They haven't really studied. They haven't followed the path of what the Rebbe tells us over and over about a Rebbe. And they create these things, which is borderline, and I'm being kind here, borderline idolatry to the point where it almost is hard to differentiate between what they believe and what Christianity believes in their J. So I want to make this really, really clear. I want to make clear that the verse says they believed in God and Moses, his servant. So the only belief that we have in Moses is not about Moses. It is the fact that Moses has totally dedicated himself to be God's servant. Hence, Moses reaches a level where there is no self-centeredness, there is no conflict, there is no evil inclination, because he was given the gift to have fasted and worked with himself to literally eradicate any egocentric self-centeredness in himself. Hence, just like the Jews believe in the Torah, a Rebbe, a Moses, is a walking, talking Torah. And therefore, the Talmud tells us that even greater than any proofs of verses, the greatest foundation to a law is called Maiseh Rav. When we know that a sage who reached this level of total annihilation of egocentric, self-centered, anything like that, and we see that he did something, that is a source that that is the law. And we're allowed to rely on his action to know that this is the law. Hence, for those that study Talmud, you will continuously see that after a whole debate, questions, teachings, verses, contradictions, all of a sudden it'll say, so-and-so said that he saw so-and-so do this. And that is the greatest foundation of a law. And I want to be more specific. I travel often. I used to go once a month. Today, for whatever reason, I can't. I used to go often to the Ohel of the Rebbe and pray here. Not only that, now that I can't go that often, I consistently use my phone to send an email to the Rebbe whenever I feel that I need a connection and a prayer. And so I do for when people tell me this one's sick, this one has a, a business deal he's worried about, whatever it may be. So what I want to share with you is that if someone goes to the Ohel and davens to the Rebbe, he has stepped out of the boundaries of Judaism. The Rebbe is not one we daven to. Hence, go ahead and look in the book that you do at the Ohel. 
you start off with prayers and then you talk to the Rebbe. And you ask the Rebbe to represent your prayer and to empower your prayer and pray for you before the throne of high. The next line is, lift your eyes and look up to heaven before you continue. There is a clear action in which we understand that Moshe is his servant and only and only God is God. I want to quote to you what the Rebbe told Rabbi Moshe Kotlarski when Rabbi Moshe Kotlarski asked the Rebbe, please give me strength to fulfill this, this mission you're sending me on. And the Rebbe said as follows, strength gives God. And the Rebbe pointed up, I give blessings. So let's be very clear. Let's be very clear in what a Rebbe is to us. A Rebbe is a Moses. Moses had a father and mother. Moses didn't resurrect. None of that. There is no deity. There is no God. There is Moses is a prophet, an absolute servant of God. And so too with the Moses of every generation. And so too with our Rebbe. Now, with that being said, let's move forward. The next verse says, "As Yashir Yisrael, Moses and the Jewish people broke, broke out in song. Now, the first practical lesson. When it comes to quetching, complaining, we articulate to God our complaints. When it comes to gratitude, sometimes we just let it be in our heart and our thought. So know that Moses and the Jewish people sang. The women even took it a step higher. Not only did they sing with their voices, which in itself is partially spiritual, they actually took tambourines, physical, and expressed their joy and gratitude and love to God. Now, there is an interesting teaching. Maimonides wants to define for us based on a chapter in the Talmud of Judges, Sanhedrin, there's a chapter called Hachelek, and it talks about the laws of which, uh, which person does have a portion of the world to come, which doesn't have a portion of the world to come. So over there, it talks about the fundamental beliefs. So there are certain beliefs that if we don't have those beliefs, we're not missing in a particular piece of Judaism. Rather, we are called a heretic and all the laws that apply to that. So Maimonides wants to know what are these do or die beliefs? Hence, he created the 13 animamins, the 13 I believes. Now, one of those 13 I believes, of course, is the coming of Mashiach, but also in the resurrection, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Now, the question is, we're, of course, we know that, of course, it's been handed down to us generation after generation, but where is it in the Torah? One of the places that we have in the Torah is from these words, and then sang Moses and the children of Israel. Why? Because grammatically speaking in Hebrew, when you have a prefix yud, like a Y, before a word, it becomes futuristic. It's one of the four letters that makes a word futuristic. Hence, it shouldn't have said as yashir, it should have said as shar. From here we know that they're giving a prophecy that when Mashiach comes, they will resurrect and then sing the final song. Okay, so let's move along over here because it's, it's really, we gotta move along. Um, the next thing that happens is that Moses has to pull them away from the, the seabed. The simple reason our sages say is because the Egyptians would adorn themselves with wealth when they went out to war to show their you know, certainty and power. So the Jews were collecting the money. That's the simple interpretation. But I learned a beautiful interpretation from the fifth Lubavitcher, from the first Lubavitcher Rebbe in his book Torah Or, and he talks there about 
that what happened at, at the splitting of the sea, and I'm going to talk about that when, when we discuss the final discussion of when your sea splits. But what I wanted to share with you is that according to the teachings, what they experienced at the sea when it split was the ultimate level of spirituality. So much so that it says that a maidservant saw a revelation at Mount Sinai, at the splitting of the sea, which even the great prophets did not see. So just that you know, they were in a total level of spirituality. They didn't want to leave, especially they didn't want to leave and go from there into the desert. Desert spiritually means it's barren of civilization, which means it's barren of divinity. Hence, the verse says that the desert was full of scorpions and serpents. Means it's deadly. The Jews did not want to have to deal with that. Let's stay in the spirituality. Hence, Moses has to forcefully tell them that's not what life is about. Life is not the isolation of spirituality, but rather the engagement of our spirituality with the physicality. Hence, the next story, according to the Jewish mysticism, when the Jews have bitter water and God shows Moses a stick and tells Moses, put the stick in the water and it will become sweet. I want to share with you, continuing on the theme that I started from the first Lubavitch Rebbe, we are taught that the stick was from the tree of life. Now, the tree of life in Kabbalah refers to the Torah. Hence, Moses, God is telling Moses to tell the Jewish people, yes, you're now basking in spirituality. Yes, when you go into the world, you're going to come across the bitterness of confusion and struggle and, and fighting for faith. However, you should know that I'm giving you the tree of life. I'm giving you the Torah. And if you study the Torah, and you do the mitzvahs, you will transform the bitterness into sweetness. The world will cease to be a violent, selfish jungle and will become a divine garden. Hence, the next story is about bitter waters turning into sweet waters through the tree of life. Okay, the next story is the Jews are complaining. Huh? Don't be surprised. The Jews are complaining because they say we missed the food that we had in Egypt. And they're talking about bread and they're talking about meat. They're punished for meat, complaining about meat, and they're not punished for complaining about bread. Why? Our sages tell us logically, because they really couldn't grow wheat and make bread in the desert. So they, they were right. They, they didn't have bread, and bread is what satisfies a person. That's why the grace after meal depends specifically if you ate bread. However, meat, you guys have animals. What are you fetching about? You want meat, slaughter one of your animals, roast it, cook it, and have meat. So you're just looking to complain? Hence, they were punished for the meat, and they were not punished for the manna. And God tells Moses that at night I will send quail, and they'll have so much to eat till it comes out of their teeth. And literally, they were, there are those that died from it. And then the manna will be in the morning. Now, just that you know, in many shuls, they will bid this reading of the manna. Because we are taught that being called up to the Torah for the reading of the manna is an amazing segula. It's amazing opening of good fortune to be able to have sustenance with abundance. Now, some people even read this Torah portion, this specific reading every single morning. Some even read it specifically, not from a photo stack copy, but from a scroll with ink, all different customs. Now, because God is giving them the manna, the manna is going to fall six. It's going to come down from heaven six days a week, not on the seventh day. On the sixth day, they'll have to have double portions. So God introduces them to the laws of Shabbat. And this is the first time the Jewish people are being told any of the laws of Shabbat. Then, after that, the, uh, 
you know, both things happen, the mana and the, and the, um, excuse me, and the, um, the, the quail. Now God tells Moses that's going to come down, the, the, the mana is going to come down in portion size. They should not take more and they should not take less. They should take exactly what it is. Now, what the amount? One, one uh, it's called the uh, Oimer, Eifa. One is one for each person. Now, what happens is we need to understand, and, and really, this is a whole different teaching, but we can't cover everything. The mana is the preparation for receiving the Torah in which there is the opening gateway between the spiritual and the physical. Because the mana is a spiritual bread that is now giving sustenance to a physical body. Hence, there's beginning to be the transformation in going from the paradigm of the heavens belong to God and earth was given to mankind to the paradigm of and God's glory fills the earth. Starting to have more and more transparency to the glove of mother nature, which is on the hand of God. Now, of course, there are those that don't listen. They take more. And, and it ended up getting that they melted and, and, uh, and Moses was upset at them. Why did you do this? So forth and so on. Okay, let's move right along here to the next story. God tells Moses, take one of the manna, put it in a jar. And later that jar was put in the Holy of Holies. A prophet would later take that out and tell the Jewish people, what do you mean you don't have time to study Torah? Look at this, what God gave your, your ancestors. And the Baal Shem Tov tells us the deeper meaning of this is that ultimately everything is mana. Everything is mana. Our, our success is never because of how bright we are and how courageous we are. Yes, of course we have to do our work and do our vessels. And the more you're going to be able to be courage and have faith in God, the more you'll take the educated, safe risks and you'll open up greater vessels. However, ultimately speaking, you and I know people that work so hard and they just don't make it. And then there are people who don't work so hard and they make it. So yeah, you want to call it Mazal. Mazal is just a nickname for God's giving. So hence, everything is mana. So when the prophet is showing them the mana, he's not showing them, oh, don't worry, rely on miracles. We don't rely on miracles. But he's telling them, what do you think you're plowing in the field is if not collecting God's mana? Okay. After this, the Jewish people move move further and then they're now complaining because there is no water and here god tells moses take your staff in front of everyone hit the rock and it will give forth water now obviously this will later lead to a, a sad story because here god tells moses take your staff and hit the rock in 40 years when miriam dies and it happens again god tells him take your staff and talk to the rock and when the talking didn't work, Moses thought, okay, last time I had to hit it, I'll hit it again. And it wasn't a sweet story. Now, what happens here is that after this, we have the closing story of the portion, which is about a Amalek. And that is the story of this nation that literally has always looked to do nothing more than to harm the Jewish people, Amalek. When you talk about Haman from the story of Purim, Haman is an offspring of Agag. Agag was the king of Amalek in the times of Samuel. So Amalek has always, always, always been a problem. Always been a problem. Now, what happens here is, and I want to share with you just another moment of insight before we wrap this up. Why does it say all of a sudden Amalek popped up? Why did Amalek pop up all of a sudden? Well, why now? And the reason is for an unbelievable story. The Jewish people are telling God, you're not here for us. You're not here for us. We don't have food. We don't have water. We are always complaining. So God says, I, will, I am always in your midst. And you're saying I'm not here? You know what? See what it feels like. And our sages tell us an unbelievable 
a story. A father is walking with a son and an enemy comes from the back. So the father puts the son in front. An enemy comes from the front. He puts his son on his shoulders and he, gives, he reaches up for him, gives him an apple. And then someone comes and asks the kid, where's your father? He says, I don't know, he left me. And the father says, oh, really? And he takes his son off his shoulders and puts him down and the son gets bitten. Now, what is going on here? So obviously, obviously, Hashem is never going to forsake us. No matter how much we complain, no matter how much we deny his presence amongst us, no matter how much we think that he's doing us harm and he just hates us and he just wants to see us suffer, God is bigger than that. I mean, for those of you who have children out there, you know, you know that it could be a time where your kid tells you, I hate you. And then two minutes later, he's on your lap loving you. God is a better parent than we are. So if we can understand that, God can definitely understand that. But nevertheless, it is important to God that we be able to have the inner peace of feeling God's protection. Now, unfortunately, many a times, our sense of security does not come when things are good. Because then the little instances which didn't go the way we wanted it to go, we interpret as God doesn't like us. Sometimes, and I, and I share from you, I share with you now from experience of which I'm actually going through. Sometimes, sometimes it takes the fright and the pain to realize that God has never, never put us down and let us fend for ourselves. With that said, I have one more thing to share with you. And that is that because in this week's Torah portion, we talk about the song that Moses and the Jews sing. So in the half Torah, we talk about the song that the prophetess Devorah said. It's a long song. It's a whole story after a war that happened and the Jews won and she was a prophetess and she was the one that led them. So over there, I just want to point out to you something mind boggling. There is a verse in which he says, Cursed be Maroz, cursed be all its inhabitants. And the sages want to know, the commenters want to know who's Maroz, who's the inhabitants. One opinion says that he was a big general and the inhabitants refers to his soldiers. However, I want to share with you an amazing teaching. Someone asked the Rebbe, is it okay according to the Torah to think or believe that there may be aliens? And the Rebbe said, absolutely. There's a commentary that clearly says there is such a thing as an alien. And where did the Rebbe point to? This verse. Because one of the, one of the, one of the commentaries say, Meroz, it says, Maroz kochav. Maroz was a kochav. Now, if you know Hebrew, there is no different word between a planet and a star. So most of you know Kochav as a star, but Kochav is also a planet. Hence, the Rebbe said, according to this opinion, Devorah cursed a planet and its inhabitants. Hence, there is aliens. But the Rebbe goes on to say that this notion that they have higher intelligence is not, not true because intelligence works part and parcel with the giving of God's commandments and God's commandments were only given on this world. Hence, it's us, the human race on planet Earth that was gifted with higher intellect. Okay, let's get to our story now. 844, we're doing perfect now. So what happens when your sea splits? So let's talk about this for a moment. Let's start with some questions. There was no reason for the Jews to have ended up on the bank of the Sea of Reeds. God purposely led him there. It was not on the route from Egypt to Mount Sinai, even if God was going to take them away from any potential war, they still should not have ended up stuck between the Egyptian army and the, and the Sea of Reeds. More than that, Toysavis tells us, Toysavis was a great sage, 
a bunch of sages. They were the primary ones were the grandchildren, the three grandchildren of of Rashi, Rav Shlomo Yitzchaki, the 11th century um, French commentator. He says that in the same side that they went in, they came out. They never crossed the river. They made a U-turn, I'm sorry, in the sea. They made a U-turn in the Sea of Reeds. So really, why? Why was this whole Sea of Reeds necessary to break and to, and to uh, break all the Egyptians and, and to wipe out the army and to allow only Pharaoh to crawl out. There's other ways God could have done that. God isn't Steven Spielberg and he doesn't get awards by, by how dramatic he can make his uh, appearance. So what, why, why this? So there's an interesting teaching that says that when a person converts, a man needs to do four things and a woman needs to do three things. The three things that they both have to do is they have to go to the mikvah, the ritual pool. They immerse themselves. They have to accept God and his commandments. And then in the times of the holy temple, they had to bring a specific sacrifice. The fourth thing that the man has to do that the woman doesn't have to do is circumcision. Now, our sages point out how the Jewish people at Mount Sinai were all considered converts. Yes, we come from Abraham and everything, but practically speaking, there was a mass conversion in which we became at Mount Sinai, the Jewish people. Until then, we were called the Hebrews or whatever it may be. Now, so we, we know about the circumcision. We know about the sacrifice and the blood that was sprinkled. We know that the Jews said we will do and we will hear. Where's the mikvah? So according to the mystical teachings, even though they didn't get wet and they didn't get undressed, but going through the sea of reeds was the mikvah part of their conversion. Now let's get a little bit deeper into what this means. So there is the sea world and there is the land world. There is sea creatures and there is land creatures. The sea creatures were created from the sea as God said, let the waters give forth and the land creatures were created from the land as the verse says, let the earth give forth. On top of that, the sustenance of all land creatures must come from the earth. As King Solomon says, everything came from the earth. And therefore, ultimately speaking, all sustenance breaks down to minerals going into the plants, the plants going into the animals, the animals going into the human. So it all boils down to ultimately speaking, the, the minerals of the earth. On top of that, the spiritual process of sustenance is also from the earth, which represents kingship. Now for the fish, it's the same with the water, right? Their actual oxygen, the gills, everything is from the water. Their food is from the water. They go out of the water, they die. So much so that according to the one opinion in Jewish law, if you hold tightly onto the fish when you go to the mikvah, so the water cannot get in between the fish and your hand, there's an opinion that says it's still kosher because the, the fish is part and parcel of the water. What does this mean spiritually? What it means spiritually is that there's hidden worlds and there's revealed worlds. What's the difference between a hidden world and a revealed world? It's not what you think it is. What it is, is that the hidden world means that the creatures are within the bosom of the spirituality and the divinity and the light which creates them and sustains them. Hence, you don't see the cre creatures <coughs> because they're within their consciousness and their being within the divinity. Now, on the other hand, a land creature lives not in the earth, but on the earth. They came out of the earth and remain out of the earth. Hence, what we're talking about here is that land creatures is the revealed world in which we see the world and not the divinity that brings about the world. In the hidden worlds, you don't see the world, you see the divinity which brought about the world in which that world exists. Okay. Now you'll understand the big secret why Moses is the one who brought us the Torah 
Because do you remember why Moses is called Moses? So the daughter of Pharaoh said, Ki min because I drew him forth from the water. According to Kabbalah, the name of Pharaoh's daughter was Batya, the daughter of God. And hence, really, it was God saying that Moses' soul is actually a sea creature. And I'm bringing him forth from the hidden lands, from the sea, in order that he should be able to bring to the land creatures, the rest of us, this deeper consciousness. You will now also understand the secret of why Moses had a speech impediment and kept on saying, I can't talk. Because the hidden world is the world of thought. It's all within yourself. It's not about expression. Hence, Moses is telling God, I am struggling because of who I am to be able to express outwardly my inner connection and consciousness. And then we now understand the miracle that when Moses spoke the words of Torah to the Jews, it was the only time that his speech impediment was not there because his whole job was to bring the word of the hidden world into the revealed world. Okay, enough Kabbalah. Now let's get practical. So there is the survival paradigm. The body of the human comes from earth and will be returned to earth. And hence, it is always in survival mode. It is always stuck in its own self-centered paradigm. It is always stuck in a fear, an innate fear. The most primal fear is the fear of death. We all are most deeply programmed for survival. And that is our priority. So much so that even the Torah says that you may desecrate laws. You're allowed to get into a car and drive on Shabbat to get to the hospital. There's only three laws you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to um, commit. You have to be willing to die for. Other than that, they're all, you commit the sin, you survive, and then you go back to doing the mitzvot. Now, that deep genetic programming of our physical being is what dominates two-thirds of our brain. I'm not talking about in size. I'm talking about in, in, in parts. Some say there's four parts, the way there's an there's emotional part to the brain stem, whatever. I'm just going to keep it simple. The reptilian brain, the emotional brain, and the frontal cortex, which is the conscious. Now, the two back ones, they cannot help but ask, am I safe? Am I loved? And the big word there is the capital I. That paradigm which drives us to the way we can do business. I don't know if you ever read the book, The Red Ocean, The Blue Ocean. The Red Ocean says that whatever you have, I don't have. So I got to outdo my competition. And the blue says that the source of sustenance is infinite. You'll have what you'll have and I'll have my niche and I'll have what I have. Now, the physical part of our brain, in other words, the part of our brain which is neurologically programmed to just focus on the survival of the physical eye is going to struggle in the red ocean. It cannot see beyond that. Yes, I love this one. Yes, I believe in God, but they all evolve around the center of my universe and the center of my universe is I, and it has to be that way in order for me to survive. That is the land creature. Now the sea creature, the soul within us has a total different paradigm. Our soul is never anxious and never worried about survival. Our soul simply lives with its genetic eternity of God. And therefore, it is never struggling in the rat race. Now let's talk about what happens when the sea breaks open. You know, 
I can best relate to it when I talk about addiction and addiction recovery. Addiction is ultimately nothing more than a survival mechanism. Whether it be drugs, alcohol, sex, food, it's a survival mechanism because we truly believe we cannot survive in the present, we need to check out. We cannot survive with dealing with these feelings. We cannot survive with having to deal and make decisions sober. So let's check out, let's numb it up. It's nothing more than a survival mechanism. It is the ultimate experience of the land creature gone completely into a stampede. Now let's talk about recovery. Recovery is founded on a higher power. Recovery is founded on let go and let God. Recovery is founded upon the service of prayer and meditation, which is all about silencing the two physical drives of the brain to allow us to begin to hear the frontal cortex in which there is the divinity of higher intelligence. So what happens when our C splits? What happens when by the grace of God, there comes this moment that this need for survival, the ultimate killing ourselves, thinking that that's the only way we can survive. What happens when that lifts? What happens when I become okay with I have and I'm okay with what you have and I have no reason to want what you have? What happens when suddenly we're at peace with ourselves and peace with the universe and peace with our fellow man and peace with God? When our sea splits, when we can love, we can learn to simply teach ourselves as we're in a panic to say, it's okay to feel this fear, but there's a higher me that's going to take care of you. And we're going to take step A, B, and C to take care of ourselves. What happens when the horse gets spooked because they heard a rustle in the, in the bushes. And the rider says, I understand. I understand that your only protection that you have is to spoof and to run. But don't. I understand your feelings, but it's okay. I'm taking care of you. That unbelievable moment of peace of mind is like a person who was stuck dragging a, a thousand pounds of burning hot coals and he's able to put it down. He's able to embrace his fear, understand what the back part of the brain is so frightened and always thinking I'm, I'm just a, 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 a centimeter, a hairline away from distinction. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going back and I'm going to fight as long as I can to not make that happen. And when we can understand, yes, we're land creatures, but we were gifted with a sea creature conscious. We were gifted to be able to find peace. We were gifted to be able to step out of self not hate self for being so anxious and so self-centered, but understanding that the brain is doing nothing more than a survival mechanism because the horse thinks it has to run. And then we allow ourselves through prayer, through study, through meditation, through actions more than anything to be okay with being uncomfortable to be okay with having fear, having trust and plunging forward. That's what happens when our C splits 
And I just wish it upon each and every one of you and myself. And may we stay there. May we stay with humility. May our ego never think that we have to take control again. May we never think that our father isn't here. May we never think that God is not amongst us. May we be humble enough to really live in the ocean on dry land. Thank you.